0: Welcome to the Calvary Couples Podcast. This is Pastor Josh, and I am uh, continuing our lesson series here in 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and really the theme of the lesson this morning is going to be digging into uh, Why Does Holiness Matter in the Life of a Christian? A lot of times when the word holiness comes up, it sometimes uh, is a little bit of a put-off for people because it can be associated with things such as uh, pride or legalism or different things. But the reality is is holiness doesn't have to be any of those things. In fact, holiness isn't any of those things. Holiness is the life of a believer being separated to whatever God's called us to do. And this is really helpful and practical for how does the Christian live out holiness, um, uh, uh, in the middle of a world of unbelievers and people that don't necessarily subscribe to the teachings of Jesus Christ. Um, so Paul directs the Corinthian church of some steps to take and, again, more importantly, why it matters, uh, how to be effective and how effective in the Christian life and how to live out to be the people that God's called us to be, to be part of God's family, to be the children of God. So really, Paul is just, um, again, challenging the Corinthians uh, that they should live a certain type of life, And that type of life is uh, the type of life that reminds ourselves that God has given us a ministry and that we have to carry that ministry out amongst believers and, in this chapter, specifically unbelievers. So we want to live our lives in a way that draws people to Christ and doesn't push people away from the message of Christ. It launches off of our lesson last week about being ambassadors for Christ. So here, Paul's appeal to the Church of Corinth is to not only accept, but to take seriously that they have received the message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. So they're not to depend on their works as the false teachers were trying to encourage them to. And if they depended on works, then the grace that they received would be useless. And that's what Paul is expounding on in verse 1 and 2. Now, by grace, what does he mean when hes when Paul says grace? He's referring to what we term as the unmerited favor of God, nothing that we've earned, nothing that we have that, that 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 God is required to offer to us its unmerited favor of God, and that's demonstrated to us ultimately in the sacrifice in the sacrifice and the death of Jesus Christ. So in verse two, Paul is quoting isaiah forty nine and verse eight, and this passage illustrates that God is ready to receive Israel when they turn to him. And just as God restored and reconciled his people Israel, he now offers the same reconciliation to all of humanity, you and I, through Jesus Christ. And then twice in verse 2, there's a really important word that comes, that's, that's revealed to us, and that word is now. And this emphasizes the importance and the urgency that the people of God need to turn to God. What is said here is that this is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time when God offers salvation and reconciliation through faith in Jesus Christ. So after he makes this case in verse 3, Paul challenges the Corinthian believers to follow the example that is set by himself and also his missionary team. And there are different missionaries we read about in the book of Acts, like Barnabas and Mark and Silvanus and different, different people. Obviously, the apostle Peter could be put into those. Um, and there were probably others that we don't, we don't know that aren't recorded for us. So these people lived their lives in such a way that their lives didn't hinder other people coming to Christ. So as a result, now they could commend or approve themselves, something that couldn't happen if they were living scandalously or hypocritical lives. And unfortunately, we see, um, in fact, I just had a news article come across my my news feed last night and this morning about about Christian leadership that had lived scandalous and hypocritical lives. And unfortunately, those are the biggest drivers that push people away from the message of Christ. And we need to live out the teachings of Christ so that it draws people to Christ. So in order to support uh, Paul's argument, he he shares his personal testimony of how himself and his ministry team had endured great hardships. Yet in in spite of those hardships, they lived with godly character in order to commend themselves to all as servants of Jesus Christ. Paul isn't here boasting about himself. He isn't boasting about those that he's working with. He's simply making the case that because of Christ, we have been able to endure hardship and still live a Christ-like life. So in these verses, Paul lists nine trials, or experiences. He lists, he lists nine inner qualities of the followers of Christ. And then he lists nine paradoxes to support the examples that he and his team demonstrated. You read about the nine trials in verse 4 and verse 5. You read about the persecutions and impositions that Paul and the others endured as a result of being a part of the ministry of Christ. And for more detailed explanations of this, you can read Acts chapter 16 verse 19 through 23, that tells about his experience in Philippi as an example, and being in jail, and how God used that as a catalyst to launch the Philippian church in that city. So from these nine trials, Paul turned to the nine internal qualities that equipped him to endure these hardships. And all those are found in verse 6 and 7. He talks about things like knowledge, long-suffering, pureness, kindness, the filling of the Holy Spirit, about love, the word of truth, the power of God, the armor of righteousness that's on our right and on our left. And this ability to bear these things under pressures and trials, the practical righteousness is now demonstrated in Paul's life. So all of these, however, would have remained useless if it wasn't for the power of God. And this is an, another component that's mentioned by the Apostle Paul. And then, as he rounds this section out in verse 8 and 8 through 10, Paul continues his list with nine paradoxes or contradictions. And these paradoxes include things like well, I'm unknown, yet I'm well known. I die, and yet I live. But these paradoxes further illustrate the challenges faced by the Apostle and his team, and their responses to these challenges and the results of them. So even through these challenges, Paul says he could remain joyful. He says, I sorrow, yet, I'm, yet I rejoice, even in sorrow. And Jesus frequently spoke in paradox um, with this idea that I, I lay my life down, I'll raise it up again. Even though I, I die, I will live. And even though I give, I will receive. All these different aspects of Jesus' ministry we see um, Paul emulating for the new believers here at the church in Corinth. So what's our takeaway for us is to live godly lives For us to avoid anything that would become an obstacle or hinder people from coming to Christ. And what are some of those actions that might be obstacles? Well, I think if we live a life of anger or selfishness, hatred, if we live a life of hypocrisy, as we mentioned earlier, just simple failure to obey God's word, I think one of the biggest hindrances for um, being a witness for Christ is to um, speak about having a certain belief system, but then living contrary to that belief system. And, and would would by the power of God that we would be able to live out the the things that we claim to believe. What are some attitudes and actions that Christians uh, might emulate that draw people to Christ? Well, we represent Christ in, in kindness, in patience, by generosity, by humility and meekness, by serving those in need who, who couldn't possibly do anything to... Um, earn the service or the or the grace that they've been given we offer this willingly specifically the church for instance is called to to minister to widows and orphans people who couldn't possibly give anything in return yet we offer kindness and love and generosity to them simply because of what christ has done for us these are ways that will draw people to the message of christ rather than push people away so we'll come right back here in verse 11 through 16 and talk about how how do we navigate this life as we live it alongside unbelievers? How do how should we interact? Should we avoid them completely and have no interaction? Should we just jump headfirst into a relationship with them and and uh, um, binding ways as the as the writer says here? We're going to try to examine that here in just a moment. So uh, hang on and we will be right back. So here's one of the big questions that uh, I think Christians struggle with in navigating the Christian life is, how do I live the Christian life out faithfully, yet how do I do that alongside unbelievers? What should my interaction and relationships be like with them? Because in one hand, we're called to be salt and light wherever we find ourselves, but on the other hand, we're called to abstain from all appearance of evil. So how do we how do we navigate that? And uh, sometimes this can be uh, a difficult thing, but it doesn't have to be. The Holy Spirit of God equips us uh, with the wisdom and the knowledge that we need and the, and the power that we need to uh, navigate through sometimes what can be uh, some difficult decisions. So let's see what the Apostle Paul provides for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 11 through 16. And the advice and the wisdom that he gives us here is that believers should avoid what, is, what we're going to term as close, binding relationships, With unbelievers. And we're going to explain what those might look like. So clearly Paul's heart is open to the believers, and he desires to have a close relationship with them. But something's going on in the ministry here in Corinth, and it seems like there's some false teaching that's happening here. And it is bringing suspicion about Paul and his ministry. So he assures the Corinthian church of his willingness to not only renew, but to deepen his relationship with them. You read that in verse 11 through 13. Which is important because Paul is reaffirming his his love for the church and then he's going to offer some maybe harder advice words that that they need to hear. And Paul's desire was for the Corinthians to return the affection that he and the other missionaries had demonstrated towards them. He uses these these words like your heart being enlarged towards us or your mouths being enlarged towards us, which is really a, a feeling of generosity. So while scholars do believe that most, felt, that most felt affection towards Paul, there clearly were those uh, somewhere in this Corinthian church that didn't feel this way. So then to further his point, he reminds them in verse 12, that even though there's distance between them that, that may be sensed uh, on their part, that he encourages them, keep your hearts open toward me because my heart is open towards you. So some of the Corinthians apparently had some close relationships with unbelievers. And Paul may even be referencing the false teachers that were within the congregation. Obviously, if you're a false teacher, then you are an unbeliever by the standards of the New Testament. So he's trying to uh, um, navigate around this divisive spirit that's happening here in Corinth. So Paul instructs the Corinthians to avoid placing themselves in close, binding relationships with unbelievers whose influence and conduct... Uh, would affect their lives. And he uses the the terminology of, of this yoke, this unequally yoked. And we'll explain a little bit more about that in a moment. So this would obviously include, what would be a binding relationship? Well, this would include certainly false teachers. Obviously, we don't ever want to align ourselves with people that are teaching a false gospel, that are teaching a false message. But also, this could include things like marriages, which is one of the most tightly um, as far as like covenant relationships we find in scripture so as far as binding is concerned that's about as binding as it gets and other binding relationships in which a person's actions attitudes and choices could strongly affect their lives so he supports this command by showing how complete opposites cannot be fully united in belief and purpose. And he uses a lot of illustrations, like darkness and light can't dwell together; uh, it's just not possible. They're they're complete opposites, so they don't work. The 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 righteous and the unrighteous, the evil and the good, the Christ, Jesus Christ and his word terminology Belial or Satan. They don't they don't go together. You can't mix them. It's not that's not the way it works. So how can they be yoked together? So when he uses this term yoked or bound together, he's not talking about eggs or anything like that. What he's what he's talking about is how animals used to be joined together to do agricultural work or to, to pull just to pull things. Um, and the logic is basic. Why would someone yoke together two animals with different strengths, different styles of work, and differing purposes, and then expect this to turn out well? No one would have those kind of expectations, and nor should believers, especially when it means when it, in regards to what Paul's referencing here is pagan worship. How can we be linked to unbelievers? This doesn't mean that we are, um, that believers are to have no interactions or friendships with other believers. With, I'm sorry, with unbelievers. Other than the writings of the apostles, such as uh, 1 Corinthians 5 and 9 through 10. We just we just looked at this lesson uh, last week, that we are called to be salt and light. We are called to be ambassadors for Christ, which is the term that Paul uses for us. We're to go out and compel people with the message and the, and the beautiful good news of Jesus Christ. But in all of that, believers should avoid binding relationships with individuals who live contrary to the faith God honors and desires to bless. So let's dig a little bit more into this unequally yoked concept, or this bound together concept in verse 14. It's a metaphor. So you mentioned earlier, it's a metaphor about unequal animals being paired together to try to get a job done. It just isn't going to work. And the warning is against joining believer and unbeliever in the same way. So how far does Paul intend for this principle to be applied? A lot of Bible scholars and commentators will agree that this would forbid marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. Marriage and a marriage relationship, especially a new one in and of itself, already has so many challenges. And research has shown time and time again that some of the biggest challenges to new marriages are financial expectations that that aren't uh, in unison, like essentially two people that have completely different ideas about money, two people that have completely different ideas about raising children, and two people that have completely different ideas about their faith. Those are some of the three biggest catalysts that will be major obstacles to overcome in the early part of marriages. So if if research shows us that, the scripture teaches us that, then obviously we can agree that binding unbeliever and believer together in marriage is, is a recipe for disaster, if I can just put it that way. So the ultimate issue was one of beliefs and values behind the decisions and courses of action that people would take. Because the basic beliefs and values of believers and unbelievers are radically different, any union would involve these beliefs and values would be doomed, as I said earlier, to tension and disharmony. Every believer should evaluate his or her relationships. And what could those look like? Well, they could be business ventures, they could be partnerships, and all these things should be um, vetted by this standard. While Paul did not give any specifics, it is clear that he never intended the believer to cease all contact and relationship with unbelievers. Because if he, was, if he were to do this, and as we referenced earlier, um, teachings like 1 Corinthians 5 wouldn't necessarily make any sense. Now, I do want to be very careful as I say this, and I hope that you'll listen to this, this is very important. This is not a call for believers who were already married to divorce their unbelieving spouses. As an example, this would have happened frequently in the early church, because the message of the gospel is brand new for everyone. So, if you have two unbelievers and one of them puts their faith in christ and becomes a christian and the other one refuses that well now you have a believer and an unbeliever that are paired together so is that now is paul saying well they should separate absolutely not in fact this the the scripture prescribes very specific um uh ways to address this uh in different areas of Scripture, Paul addresses it in different letters, as well as Peter specifically addresses it. And in fact, he encourages the, the believing spouse to stay in the relationship as much as possible and live out the love of Christ, the kindness of Christ, the generosity of Christ, the meekness of Christ, to win the other partner over eventually. And that's the goal, is to win the other over. There's a lot of nuances to that that I'm not going to get into right now, but the reality and the goal is is that the unbelieving spouse and the believing spouse, though they as being married previously, would stay together. And the believing spouse would do everything in their power by prayer, by living out the, the beautiful message of Christ to win that other spouse over, that they would also experience eternal life themselves. So moving on from here... Paul's point is further clarified by five rhetorical questions that he asks from verse 14 to 16. Essentially, he's asking questions here he knows the answer to, but he's making a point. Each of these questions was intended to reflect the vast difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. In fact, he uses the word in verse 15 called Belial, which means a person of lawlessness. And it it would come to be used of the evil one himself, meaning Satan. The last expression in verse 16 compares the temple of God with the temple of idols. And which between them there's no agreement whatsoever. You, God, from the very outset, as in, in Deuteronomy and in Numbers, t- tells His people that you cannot serve Me and you cannot serve idols. Jesus reminds us in the New Testament: we cannot serve God and we cannot serve man and ourselves, and we can't serve God and we can't serve money at the same time. God is a to worship God in spirit and in truth is to worship God singularly and solely. We cannot blend the pagan worship of idols with the with the worship of God. There's no agreement. So, Paul then concludes his question with a reminder that we, as believers, are the temple of God. And that's reiterated for us in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6. And God wants to live in us and walk in close relationship with us. And He doesn't, God is a jealous God, and we mean that in the best way possible. God is not interested in sharing us with anything or anyone else as far as our um, affection of worship. God desires our worship and our worship alone and worship to Him alone. And that is because He is our maker. He is our creator. He is the one who has redeemed us. And He is the only one worthy of that worship. So let us choose carefully who we allow in and whose teachings we allow in and who we allow to influence us. And we can give some examples of what that might look like and we have already we've talked about marriage we've talked about business partnerships but we ought to be careful of how tightly our relationships with any unbeliever is as as it is as it references how strong their control and influence are over us what kind of leverage do they have on our decision making what kind of aspects do they have in our mind and our thinking how do we allow them in Um, that's really where it gets very important and what does this passage reveal about the differences between believers and unbelievers? Well, what it reveals to us is that the believer and the unbeliever, their values and purposes are completely different. We are not we can't find common ground in the truest purest sense of what it means to follow God, because as believers, we are in the family of God. And in unbeliever simply hasn't experienced that. As believers, we have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. The unbeliever doesn't have that. So they're completely different. They're completely opposite. And ultimately, at a a core level, we can't find compromise or common ground in that respect. So finally, we'll come back and we'll look at with, as Paul was building this, this case and this argument here, what's the final aspects? What, what's the big thing? What are we supposed to do with this? Um, how, how am I supposed to live this out to today, tomorrow, the next day? So we're going to dig into that we need to separate ourselves from sin and keep growing in holiness. All right, welcome back to the final part here in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be in verse 17, and we're going to go to the first verse. We're going to cap it off in the first verse of chapter 7. So Paul says we're redeemed by faith, we're, by saving grace of God. He gives some examples of how God has um, uh, empowered him to live out even in an adversity, and how we as Christians are to do the same. And then he gives examples of how we can't mix the, the holy and the unholy together. And now he... he, he We get to the climax of the big word in 17, the wherefore, therefore, and we'll look at what that means. So he ends the instruction for his readers to make decisions that would move them toward holiness. And in verse 17, and it may be translated differently, it says, therefore or wherefore, linking it to the principles established in everything Paul said previously. Since believers are the temple of God, by his Spirit, So what are we going to do? We are to separate ourselves from everything that would defile his dwelling place. And what is the dwelling place of God? Well, that's our bodies, our hearts, and our minds, as he references in verse 17. And here Paul is quoting Isaiah 52, which encourages the Corinthians and us to separate themselves from those who would serve as harmful influences to their spiritual lives. Now, while God's power and spirit are at work in our lives, and we are the recipients of God's grace and power, we don't just get to stay passive. We don't get to say, well, I'm just going to remain neutral in this whole situation. It doesn't work that way. Christian life is not lived that way. The verses are to fill us with action. That as believers, we are to do very specific things in that, that he tells us. We are to first come out from among them. We are to be separate We are to touch not the unclean things and we are to cleanse ourselves from unrighteousness that's the daily aspects of what believers are to engage in so god has called us out so we come out from amongst the the worldly thinking and behavior then we separate ourselves not not separate ourselves in this way that like we don't have any contact but I'm going to separate myself from worldly thinking worldly attitudes worldly actions. I'm not going to touch those things that are going to tarnish my testimony for Christ. And I'm going to continually keep short accounts with God to cleanse myself. The scripture says if we ask he is and he is if we ask for his forgiveness he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So while God's power will most assuredly enable us to do these things, it is placed upon us to be active in the process of sanctification. It isn't this passive thing where I just sit back and it happens to me. I engage and I put myself to the work and the plow of becoming more like Christ, letting this mind of Christ be in me. So if we couple these actions, believers are to embrace some special promises. This is the beauty of the whole thing. If you don't get anything, this is so powerful. God says that he would welcome us or receive us. Now, does that mean the harder I work, the harder I try, if I don't meet up to God's standard, then He's not going to welcome me? Well, the truth is I'll never meet up to God's standard. Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for my sin, and I come in repentance and faith, believing in Him, and that is why God receives me. But there are great blessings that come with the promises of living out the way God expects us to. And here is really what more is being connected is, as we do the things that we are called to, come out, be separate, touch not, cleanse, that there are rec- rec- we can receive these special promises of God. And commentators see a link between this verse and Ezekiel 20, verse 34 through 41, where God promised to gather and to care for Israel. He's our Father. So this must have been especially encouraging to those believers who are struggling with being ostracized because of their faith and wondering how or if they would ever be accepted. So you're, you're a, you're, 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 you live in a pagan society. This new message of Christ is permeating everywhere. And some people are very opposed to it. Some are receiving it. Once you receive it, now all of a sudden you are an outcast. So this idea of being accepted into the family of God would have been a powerful, powerful truth and promise. And then in verse 18, the Lord said he would be a father to us. What an awesome promise available to every believer that God becomes our father. It's like the message of the prodigal where even though we we sin and we separate ourselves from the blessings of God, that the reality of the relationship between God and his child hasn't changed and we can always come back. And he waits with open arms to receive us. Here it appears that Paul was quoting from 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God promised to be a father to David's sons. A redeemed people, such as the Corinthian believers, had a special and unique relationship with God the Father. And from these sons and daughters, however, God wants and deserves allegiance and obedience. In other words, God's promise to be present with us is such a close relationship, and that is what motivates us to cleanse ourselves of anything that would hinder our growing holiness and relationship with the Lord. The cleansing alluded to here would have been understood by the Corinthians as a ceremonial cleansing a purification that implied separation from evil and sinfulness and defiling. So as used here, body or flesh or spirit, it references the whole person, including not just the inner person, the way we think, our attitudes, our actions, our minds, our hearts, but Paul also constantly emphasizes that how we use our bodies, how we live, how the actions that we take also have profound effect and that those things should need to be cleansed as well. And in the attitude of reverence for God, we can cleanse ourselves by setting aside all sin and consistently choosing what is right. And this is what results in holiness. This is what makes anything holy is consistently choosing what is right. This is a maturing, growing holiness that reveals itself in a believer becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. What's so amazing here is that Paul uses the Old Testament to make his case, to accomplish several things, and some of those things are, first, it reveals and supports that Paul's knowledge of Judaism and the teachings of the Old Covenant were obviously very strong. And secondly, it illustrates the fact that he was not just some rogue teacher that was teaching these principles that were contrary to the principles of God. He wasn't just coming up with these new words from the Lord that had no bearing in all the previous revelation of what God had revealed for thousands of years in the Old Testament. And finally, it challenges the Corinthians in how they were to live and how to live their lives and the difference that it would make when they determined to choose holiness so let us take steps to separate ourselves from sin and let us grow in holiness and what might that look like well let's admit when we've sinned let's confront it let's let's be honest about it let's confess it let's turn away from it let's not place ourselves in areas where we will be confronted with temptation let's avoid those things and let's keep ourselves accountable to God and also to one another and lift each other up in truth and graciousness and holiness And how can we grow in holiness and draw others to Christ? The more we become more like Christ, the more beautiful the message of the gospel becomes in our lives and is revealed to those around us. So let us commit ourselves. There's no greater attitude or action that we can be engaged in than to determine to become more like Jesus Christ. And that is how we'll find ourselves to be effective in living the Christian life. I hope this lesson has been helpful. We will continue our study in 2 Corinthians next week, and I look forward to uh, studying together here on the Calvary Couples Podcast.